public access to the public airwaves from the 1980s forward had effectively priced the public out of getting access to the airwaves through the ownership mechanism of a radio station. On this edition of Radio Survivor, Professor John Anderson explains how Reagan-era deregulation, culminating with the Telecommunications Act of 1996, touched off popular resistance on the airwaves and in Washington. Then we learn about the nearly forgotten early history of college radio from Jennifer Waits. Yeah, I mean, see, this is something that a lot of people are not aware of. The first experimental radio license in the U.S. was issued to a college, actually, in 1912. In 1925, there were 124 radio stations operated by colleges and universities, which is kind of <laughs> kind of shocking, actually. Right. Hello, this is the Radio Survivor Program. My name is Eric Klein. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the program. I'm here with Paul Reismandel. Hello. Who's the other host and producer. Our radio program, of course, is about college radio, community radio, listener-supported radio. Internet radio, podcasting, any kind of radio in which uh, listeners and community are primarily important, why you do it. And on today's program, uh, much like last week's program, we're going to be uh, we're going to continue to commemorate an enormous and overlooked anniversary in the world of radio. The 1996 Telecommunications Act was passed 20 years ago and a week. And um, we're talking with John Anderson, who has a unique perspective on on the anniversary and and how it all played out. Yes, uh, John is a professor of journalism at Brooklyn College. And what he's going to help do is tell the story of how uh, the Telecommunications Act of 1996 and a lot of the sort of uh, political environment leading up to the Telecommunications Act triggered massive civil disobedience in the radio dial and how that civil disobedience led to some really positive change uh, for communications democracy. Yeah, because if, if anyone knows anything about the Telecommunications Act of 1996, they know that it sort of created the monster that was Clear Channel that ate up all of local radio in America, changed the radio landscape forever. And so John really offers this unique alternate story. He doesn't say that Clear Channel didn't eat local radio. Of course, he's not disagreeing with that. But what he says is there was also this other outcome that is um, even less well-known in the public discourse. If anyone is talking about the, the 1996 Telecommunications Act at all, other than our program, Radio Survivor, they certainly haven't talked about how it led to this flowering of micro-radio. And, and as well, it also triggered uh, much more public interest an understanding of how media ownership and media policy affects our everyday life uh, in, in this ultra-mediated environment. And John also gives some nice reminders of how the public interest is better represented in yeah. uh, all of these policy mechanisms there, than it was back in 1996. Yeah, there's some new institutions that have cropped up uh, because of what took place. And those institutions now are um, relatively healthy and he name checks them. So that's that's what's coming up in today's episode. And we'll also hear from Jennifer Waits, who is going to give us a little bit of the history of the uh, – 
founding of the Haverford College radio station. And this is significant because this goes back almost 100 years now. Wow. The founding of the Haverford yeah. College radio station. 19, 1923. And this is why I love uh, recording College Radio Watch with Jennifer, because when she digs up treasure from the past, uh, she really digs up treasure. And so I hope you I hope you enjoy that interview where we talk about the history of this um, early college radio station, the people who founded it. Um, one, one of my favorite things about the Haverford's uh, college radio station as it was founded almost 100 years ago was that it could be heard for thousands, like a thousand miles around. It's because there was no other stations yeah, just about. Everything, it's like the picture is just flat and gray and then there's a radio signal. Um all the way to San Diego from from Haverford. So yeah, and this so is a preview like of a talk that she will be giving at Haverford College that we'll tell you more about later in the show. And uh, before we talk to John, uh, the one thing I wanted to mention, everyone, is that we've actually had a lot of inquiries from radio stations that would like to be carrying our podcast as a radio show. Why can't we just give it to them? They can well, have it. We can. The problem is, is Alyssa, you probably recognize that sometimes our show is an hour, sometimes an hour and 15, sometimes 55 minutes. And that's because, you know, uh, we work really hard to put together a great show every week and to have lots of different segments. And it's about all we can pull off in any given week. Um, is to get the show recorded and out. And to make it ready for air, um, stations needed to come in at a very consistent time, usually something like... The tyranny of the clock. Exactly. Come in at like 59 minutes or 29 minutes, or maybe in segments that they could pick and choose from. And we'd love for this to happen. And it's a lot to expect someone at a community radio station or college station to uh, edit the show down from what we release as a podcast as something that will go on air. I can say... From experience, professional experience, this is work that I have done in the past, and I estimate that it would take me uh, three to four hours per episode to take to take an out, uh, episode that is that has gone long uh, as we like to, you know, and get it get it down to the right length without without losing too much. Without just chopping things out, sort yeah, of indiscriminately, without, without cutting Jennifer out of the show, so that we're only doing uh, our feature interview and we never have college radio watch it would be a little bit easier to make the edits then but that's not how we want to present the show we want it to have everything just with a tighter package yeah exactly and that's something which i mean there's a reason for it we'd like more people to be hearing about the legacy of the telecommunications act um both sort of the negative side and the positive sides because we feel like these are things that are not being discussed uh enough even even in community radio even even in college radio and we'd love to be able to share this and reach more people uh with these discussions about radio that matters um both so that i think it's great for people listening to community radio to hear more and understand better these these institutions in the in their in their communities that they support and to get sort of that perspective because I think it also helps them to sort of often value that station even even more than they already do. Yeah, I, that's I agree one hundred percent. I think the the history of what went into community radio, college radio, listener supported radio, and and knowing um, just how I mean everyone knows why they like the radio station they like, but also having being able to put that into a perspective and knowing that where how your radio station that you love um, was able or or not able to be on the air at all, I think, uh, is part of what we do on this program every week. So we'd love to be able to do that, but we need your help. Uh, we need you to help us 
basically uh, get the resources together, both the time and the other sorts of resources that we'll need to put together to really well distribute the show in a way in which it is completely usable to community college, other non-commercial stations because we want to distribute it for free. Yeah. All right. I mean, certainly we could put together a model in which stations uh, would uh, pay us to air the show. But frankly, for most community radio stations right now in particular, they're no longer receiving uh, grants from the corporation for public broadcasting to, to purchase programming with. So the stations that would be able to afford to pay us, are not interested in, exactly. in the community radio that we're covering and the community radio that is interested can't afford it. Exactly. So we, we, we'd like to be able to offer this, the show for free, um, especially to new low-power FM stations, which which may have a real need for some uh, well-packaged and, and easy to uh, easy to find uh, programming that is also very appropriate uh, for their airway. So we need your help. And fits their clock. So we're asking you, if you've listened to the show and you'd like us to keep doing this and, and you think that, that it would be great if it could air on a low-power FM station, a college station, a community station somewhere, to please contribute to our Patreon campaign. Right now, we're at about $200 a month is what our uh, patrons contribute to Radio Survivor altogether. The website uh, and the program. The website the and the podcast, everything that we do. And we really need that to get up to $500 a month. We need to get that to $500 a month in order for us to really be able to consistently, every week, deliver this show as a radio show, ready to be broadcast on time, uh, super consistently to a community radio station or a college radio station. And the thing about this is, is that I know if everybody who listened to the show contributed just $1 a month, we'd be there. We'd be there in no time. This is killing me, Paul. I have never before sitting here uh, podcasting with you have ever before felt as much like a community radio yeah, DJ. We're doing a pledge drive, right essentially, yeah. as I know. And and of course, if How someone, much do you pay for a cup of coffee? Exactly. And if someone can, can, can contribute $10 or you contribute 15 or 20, we'll get there so much faster. Um, and we, but we're really not going to be able to do that until we reach this point. And so it's one of these things where we'd like to do it sooner rather than later. Um, but when we do it is really up to listeners to Radio Survivor. Yeah. And thank you so much for, for considering it now as you listen to our show. I really appreciate it. I mean, I want to make, sh- make that clear at the top that if you can afford it, Thank you. If you can't afford it, thank you. Yeah. And if you can't, though, uh, one thing you could do is tell more people about the show. So if you, you know, tweet about it, share it on social media, tell a friend, you know, give someone that recommendation of, hey, um, if, you, if you're into podcasts, check out Radio Survivor. If you're not in a podcast, well, maybe you should start with Radio Survivor. We'd really appreciate it. Yeah. That. And rate and review us on iTunes because that in a, in a, in a similar manner, uh, gets the word out. The more, the more reviews, the more stars, uh, that are clicked and then, uh, well-written short reviews, uh, that'll boost our signal on the iTunes platform where most people in, in America discover their podcasts. Absolutely. So go to radiosurvivor.com slash support or go to patreon.com slash radiosurvivor, uh, to make your contribution towards this goal of, taking the Radio Survivor podcast and distributing it nationally or internationally to community college and other non-commercial stations. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Up next on the program, we're going to talk to John Anderson about the 1996 Telecommunications Act. (laughs) 
John Anderson, thank you so much for joining us here on Radio Survivor. Thanks for having me. So last week on the show, we talked to a colleague of yours at uh, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Dr. Christopher Terry. And he, like you, has a, had a background in commercial radio. And he helped to kind of illustrate why we are recognizing the 20th anniversary of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And he was able to lay out the story of the effects on commercial radio in particular and why that really impacted localism. And sometimes people get it in their heads that, well, it, it only affected commercial radio, right? Because that's where, you know, the most significant consolidation happened. And of course, it was the big profit incentive for the consolidation to happen. But it also affected other types of radio. And this is something which which you've been studying now, I think, nearly since the Telecommunications Act uh, passed in 1996, because it kind of touched off a, uh, a sort of revolution on the airwaves of sort, uh, a sort of what we would, I think, a sort of wave of civil disobedience. And I, and I was hoping maybe, John, you could you could tell a little bit of that story. Yeah, Paul, there's a whole hidden history of broadcasting in the United States, which really hasn't been explored very much by academics or anybody in the industry. Um, and that is the phenomenon of unlicensed broadcasting, pirate radio. Pirates have been around for as long as broadcasting has been around. And for as long as there's been licenses, there's been people that for various reasons have decided that they do not want to subscribe to the licensing regime. A lot of these people based uh, their notions of being on the air without a license around the idea that we all have First Amendment rights uh, to communicate and those rights are not simply uh, transcri- or cir- circumscribed by a medium. Um, and there was also a document passed by the United Nations in the middle of the 20th century called the Declaration of Human Rights, which contains an article called Article 19, um, which signifies that all people uh, under this rubric of this document have the right to communicate both to impart and receive information regardless of frontiers. And so for you know, 100 years now, there have been people who've taken to the air with unlicensed radio stations to provide services to various communities and for various political reasons. And in the last 20 or so years of the 20th century, uh, pirate radio kind of evolved into something that more signified a social movement. And this trend actually began in like the mid to late 1980s uh, during a period that Dr. Terry had talked about last week. Um, uh, the notion of the deregulatory marketplace philosophy that was put into effect at the Federal Communications Commission by Reagan's FCC chairman, uh, Mark Fowler. And that started to transform the notion of what commercial radio service uh, was and how it was provided. And it also started to open the notion of increased consolidation in radio ownership. And Americans uh, that were politically engaged and media active uh, noticed this and began to build their own unlicensed broadcast stations, primarily to make up for services that commercial radio may have offered, but now under this new regime weren't considered profitable enough to offer anymore. And there's a couple of stations uh, in particular that are kind of noted as the the bellwether of this, what became known as the micro radio movement. Um, One of them was called Zoom Black Magic Radio out in California. Uh, It was started in an Airstream trailer in a parking lot uh, in about 1985. And it was basically designated to uh, provide community news and information and entertainment uh, to the local African-American community. Um, And then 
right around that same time in Springfield, Illinois, another radio station was started up and it was originally called WTRA, Tenants Rights Association. And it was started by a man uh, by the name of Mbana Kantako. Uh, he was blind. He had like a very low reading level and uh, he'd lost his sight in part because he suffered from police brutality uh, on the part of the Springfield police. And in the 80s, uh, police brutality in Springfield's African-American community was totally out of control. Uh, and at the same time, the city was looking to close down the public housing projects in the area. So Mbana, uh, because he was blind, uh, didn't have the ability to read, uh, didn't think a printing press was a way to try to carry this uh, struggle forward, started a radio station called Tenants Rights Radio. And that station actually became kind of a, a nexus uh, for Springfield's black community to report and bear witness to instances of police brutality or structural racism in this campus. Remember, this is or in the city. This was 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and it actually provided tangible change on the ground. Uh, police brutality in Springfield uh, plummeted. They were not able to save the housing projects, though. But Mbana packed up his transmitter and he moved to another location and continues the radio station now, today, all this time later, uh, under the name of Human Rights Radio. So, John, I mean, this may be an obvious question, but, you know, they were able to create real change with zoom black magic and uh, as well in Bonnet Kentucky's radio station. Why didn't they get licenses? Why didn't they just go and get uh, community radio licenses, non-commercial licenses? Uh, couldn't afford it. You know, there is a significant investment that you need to make when you uh, decide to go the license route. All of your equipment must be what's called type accepted or type certified by the Federal Communications Commission. And getting that certification basically adds several thousand dollars of costs uh, to the cost of uh, transmission infrastructure for a radio station. There's also notions of like where you can mount an antenna. If you're a licensed radio station, you need to have it on a proper tower, at a properly sited location. Um, but you can actually put a radio station up with several hundred watts uh, using your own transmitter that's clean but not might not be type accepted and also an antenna that you can literally build yourself uh, and hang off of a chimney or the top of an apartment building. So basically it was the cost structure. Public access to the public airwaves from the 1980s forward had effectively priced the public out of getting access to the airwaves through the ownership mechanism of a radio station. And John, you had just we were just saying that um that prior to the consolidation that was happening in the eighties, uh, that there was a community service model that allowed for 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 these sorts of voices to be heard on the airwaves? Or I mean, it sounds to me like this kind of radical radio might have always needed to be uh more underground, uh just just based on based on how um how radical the message would be. I mean, so, so did these people actually have access prior to consolidation? Uh, no. And it wasn't something that was necessarily considered, uh, you know, uh, necessary, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, there was, there were, uh, com uh, commercial radio stations in markets, small, medium, and large that actually provided something akin to community service. Part of this was due to the fact that there were no large broadcast conglomerates back then. If you're a radio station owner, your business was primarily invested in local ownership of a handful at most of radio stations. The Federal Communications Commission also used to vigorously enforce the license requirement uh, and the obligations that a licensee 
had. Uh, things like airing community programs, uh, providing uh, robust public affairs discussions that had to be logged in the public file. And the Fowler regime basically uh, started to roll those obligations back. Uh, none of that programming back in the day was ever profitable, but it was a it was a quid pro quo, which the broadcasters provided in order for you know very low cost access to a scarce resource. So when community rate or when when commercial radio began to consolidate and the public service obligations on commercial radio began to be diluted and removed, suddenly there was a gap on the airwaves where community information might have actually been provided before but no longer was. And it these people had to go the radical notion of building an unlicensed radio station in many respects to simply replace service that they'd already had. And so then we have this starting with the Reagan FCC under Chairman Fowler. And then in 1996, we have the Telecommunications Act, which lifts the nationwide cap completely from radio ownership. You can own as many stations as you can gobble up and then lifts the cap on local ownership to, in the largest markets, to eight. So that, you know, in, in a single market, a single owner could have eight different stations and, and greatly accelerating uh, this process that had been started in the Reagan era. What happened then to stations like Human Rights Radio? What happened to folks who were starting to see that uh, unlicensed radio may be their only route to being on the air? Well, as more stations started to proliferate around the country, more people started to recognize the power of electronic civil disobedience. Um, in the 1990s, early 1990s, uh, the stations that had kind of been created in the 80s inspired a lot of activists, especially, you know, leftist, progressive type activists, uh, to found radio stations to also serve their communities and also to advance the more radical political message, uh, which we talked a little bit about before. Uh, there was a guy in Berkeley, California named Stephen Dunifer, still there, started a station called Free Radio Berkeley, and he was a radio engineer, and he actually designed and built low-cost kits for transmitters and antennas that you could actually buy and then assemble uh, with some, you know, a soldering iron. Uh, all you had to do was know a little bit of electronics and you could put a station on the air. So between like 1985 and 1996, there was actually a proliferation of, of pirate stations because access to the gear, the transmission equipment uh, grew in a big way. Also, the coming of the internet allowed pirate radio stations, which were otherwise, you know, very atomized and only serving their isolated communities, uh, to start talking to each other, mm. to network and share tactics and strategies. And from that actually became a program sharing sites like the A-Infos Radio Project. And there were news sites about the micro radio movement and the FCC's response to it, like microradio.net. Um, that's when I started blogging, and that's one of the services that I saw myself providing uh, was to this growing micro radio movement, a, a look into what the FCC was doing and what licensed broadcasters were reacting to when you went on the air. So when 1996 actually happened and the Telecom Act was passed, 
And the implications of the Telecom Act began to be felt, where massive consolidation started to happen because of that removal, especially of the, of the national cap on the number of stations a, a single company could own. People started to witness the decimation of not just any community service, but the concept of localism on their entire radio dials. DJs disappeared, that were replaced by syndicated programming and voice tracking from miles away. Um, and people began to see that the public airwaves were essentially being squeezed of anything resembling local or community flavor. And that inspired kind of a second wave of pirate stations to take to the air explicitly in resistance to the Telecom Act. And these stations uh, who, who were, you know, I guess inspired by circumstances, really, uh, by community, by their local commercial radio stations really no longer providing local service because they probably, as Chris explained, uh, not local anymore, effectively, where, where programming decisions were made far away. Often even the, the voices they heard on air were being voice tracked from far away. Um, and so people responded to this, put their own stations. And so was this, I mean, were these stations necessarily explicitly political, you know, were they, were they necessarily, you know, with their very message saying we are in resistance to the uh, telecommunications act and the licensing regime, or, you know, was there a little bit more of like, well, what I used to sort of enjoy about radio is gone and I'm just going to do it myself. I think it's a little bit of both actually. Um, I mean, in order to put a pirate radio station on the air, you have to know enough about how radio broadcasting works from a scientific basis and a regulatory basis to recognize the implication that what you're doing is illegal. I mean, you really can't get around that. Um, and, and any pirate that puts a station on the air comes to terms with that and conducts an assessment of what I like to call relative risk, which is uh, if I put the station on the air, how likely am I to get busted versus actually doing good for my community? So simply by existing um, stations were in effect protesting the Telecommunications Act of 1996, but totally many stations took to the airwaves uh, that were not explicitly political. Um, people took to the air to provide music formats that had disappeared or to provide talk programming that was no longer offered or to provide alternative programming that uh, internet distribution allowed them to do. Um, and so you had to be motivated by some sort of wanting to provide something to the area in which you live, but you couldn't get around the fact that what you were doing was in effect an explicitly political act. John, we're talking about unlicensed stations all around the country, pirates, radio stations that were um, going on the air in the 90s, right? So uh, how do you know this stuff? How do you know what was going on at all as a researcher? Um, it's a difficult a story to put together and you have to look in a lot of different places. Uh, the first one was, you know, I, I started blogging about it in the late 90s and the internet was a place where you could actually find information about specific pirate stations. And like I said, the, the yes. micro radio movement, as it were, uh, was starting to coalesce around uh, certain nuclei uh, on the internet and began to exchange information. Another thing that you would look at would be uh, local press reports. So when I was running this blog on pirate radio, I would do searches of news sites um, and searches of the primitive search engines of the times looking for stories about pirate broadcasters. And many local media outlets will cover a pirate broadcaster because it's unique. 
what's this crazy, funky radio station doing on the air? Right. Sometimes the, the local the local TV and radio broadcasters will cover it as, oh, look, dirty, scurvy, you know, interlopers on the dial. And then the third place you can look for information on pirate activity is actually the Federal Communications Commission, um, because the FCC does publish at least part of their enforcement activities online. So if you know where to look on the FCC's website, you can actually find like all of the warning letters that they've ever issued to pirate radio stations in the last 20 years and, and the fines and threats of fines uh, that they've also been involved in. So there's a lot of different information sources. You have to put them together and hopefully you get kind of a comprehensive picture out of it. But you're right. I mean, it's inherently an underground phenomenon. So it's very difficult to tell the fully rounded story. And so we have all of these unlicensed stations going on the air through the course of the 90s. And it sounds to me like it starts, it just become a movement. And in fact, you called it the micropower radio movement. And uh, from the sounds of it, I mean, as you're doing your research, you're finding mention in you know press clippings, as well as seeing the FCC taking action against more and more of these stations. It sounds like every year. Well, well what was the response then to this? I mean, certainly I can't imagine either the FCC or licensed commercial broadcasters were all that happy about the, uh, the new unlicensed broadcasters on the dial. Uh, no, no, they were not at all. One of the important things I think to mention at this stage in the conversation is that some of the stations that took to the air under the auspices of the micro radio movement in the early to mid 90s and around the Telecommunications Act time explicitly did so in hopes of challenging the FCC's regulatory and licensing authority. Stephen Dunnifer of Free Radio Berkeley actually filed a suit against the Federal Communications Commission after they moved on his radio station and tried to pass an injunction which would effectively barred him from ever being on the radio dial uh, ever again. And he convinced a federal district court judge in California that his argument had enough merit that the FCC's enforcement process had to be stalled until the agency could explain why it was busting pirates, that being the most effective way of regulating the public airwaves. When that happened in the federal court, the FCC's attorney stood up and said something to the effect of, Your Honor, you don't understand. You're opening such a can of worms because if you stop us from enforcing the license requirement, you're sending the message that there's a gray area in the law where you can operate with impunity. And in many respects, that's actually what happened. So you had a, like a multi-front guerrilla warfare going on between uh, micro radio broadcasters and the Federal Communications Commission. On one hand, you had stations playing cat and mouse with field agents on the ground, and the FCC is notoriously understaffed in the field, so they're constantly playing whack-a-mole. They'll come and bust a station or warn them, and the station will go down and move to another location, and the whole process starts all over again. And then you had these committed activist stations that were actually engaged in trying to challenge FCC rules on this that were engaging the agency in court with arguments that they'd never heard before. And that basically functionally overwhelmed the FCC's ability to adequately govern the public airwaves and enforce the license requirement. Uh, commercial broadcasters and public broadcasters absolutely hated this. 
even though the majority of these stations did not actually fundamentally uh, damage or uh, diminish the audiences or revenue of the broadcast industry. They didn't like the fact that there was these interlopers on the air. And in like 1997, 1998, the National Association of Broadcasters radio board convened and they passed what they called a micropower declaration of war, where they were going to muster all the forces of the industry to help the FCC go out and sweep the airwaves of all pirates on the dial. Obviously, that was a nice sentiment. But it never happened because there were so many stations on the air and they're so difficult to track down and actually nail uh, that it was like trying to chase smoke. And so I, I want to make sure we, we, we don't leave this behind. You mentioned that Stephen Dunifer, Free Radio Berkeley, challenged the FCC in court. And I guess we take for granted the notion that the FCC has dominion over licensing the airwaves that – I think we need to explain, well, what was their argument? What was Dunifer's argument? How was he able to, at least for a while, successfully challenge the FCC or at least bring up some plausible doubt in their authority? Uh, he did it kind of on, on two primary legal tactics. The first one actually goes back to something also I think you talked about last week, which was uh, the discontinuation of what used to be called Class D FM radio licenses, right? These were small micropower radio stations that essentially were uh, told to move off the dial, go off the air or upgrade their power in order to make room for the coming of national public radio and all the affiliate stations that would be part of NPR. Dunifer and his attorneys argued that when the FCC killed off class D stations, they effectively nixed the public's most effective way of getting access to the public airwaves through the ownership and licensing mechanism. And then he also looked at the deregulatory pro uh, neoliberal economic trends of, of the regulation of the time and said that because we don't have access to the airwaves in any way, shape or form that in some respects um, constitutes a fundamental violation of our free speech rights. Um, the courts have long said that there is no First Amendment right to the airwaves because there is a limited number of licenses that can fit on the dial in any specific geographic area. Dunifer's argument was if there's no mechanism for us to even try to get on the airwaves legally, what are we left to do other than to go it alone and go it outside the law? And the judge in that case, Claudia Wilkin, uh, basically said, yeah, um, that makes sense. FCC, before I act on your injunction request, I want you to explain um, why this current system is the most effective way of, of regulating the airwaves in the public interest. And it really threw a monkey wrench into the FCC and the broadcast industry's whole paradigm of, of how they thought the licensing system was supposed to operate. So we have this situation then where again, all these stations are going on the air. And then as you painted, the FCC's enforcement capability pretty much stretched to it to its maximum trying to deal with it. And, and it sounds as if probably fairly ineffectively in a lot of places. And even the FCC having to account for itself in court uh, to, to defend uh, a licensing regime and the way it, it, it assigns licenses in a way it probably hadn't had to in decades. Um, I mean, that's a lot of pressure coming down on on the FCC in particular. But but, you know, and I can imagine that the the commercial broadcasters weren't exactly uh, giving the FCC a pass either since they sort of, you know, depend on the FCC to kind of keep the airwaves clear. Um, this is a lot of pressure. How, how did how did this get relieved or, or how did the FCC end up dealing with it? Well, they ended up dealing with it by uh, starting the consideration of the low power FM radio service. 
1996, consolidation in the radio industry and the other effects of the Telecommunications Act of 1996 we're actually having like palpable, discernible effects on our media environment. And uh, the average American, in many respects, kind of was having that spidey sense that there was something wrong in their media environment, but they couldn't quite figure out what it was. And uh, these engaged media activists, microbroadcasters, were able to kind of tap into this latent popular discontent about the trajectory of our media environment. Uh, and they began to actually mobilize people to advocate um, for potential change uh, to our media laws. Uh, the Low Power FM proceeding actually started in about 1997 when two separate petitions were filed by two separate individuals who basically were looking to, in many respects, kind of recreate the Class D FM license system. And these people hailed from very different backgrounds, but they kind of used almost the exact same argument, which was... Uh, the radio dial has been decimated. Uh, radio and localism is such a, a lifeblood to any sort of community public sphere that exists in this society. Uh, and they also said the FCC is dealing with a, a, a movement of resistance right now, which is functionally overwhelming the agency. So why don't you look to some sort of compromise where you create a community, a low power community radio service. And in the process, you might be able to bleed off some of that pressure by convincing many of the unlicensed broadcasters to kind of come into the fold. Um, and by 1999, the FCC was so functionally overwhelmed with microbroadcasters and the politically activated and motivated microbroadcasters were starting to build coalitions, which were kind of the, the protoplasm of the media reform movement as we know it today, that the FCC opened a proceeding and started actually considering the notion of creating a bona fide community radio service. And the LPFM radio service is the only, only broadcast service in, in the history of the United States which was actually created due to public, direct public demand. Um, and so it was a pragmatic move on the part of, of the commission for sure, uh, both looking to kind of uh, uh, capitalize on this discontent by showing that they were receptive to the demands of the American public, uh, but also as a way to hopefully kind of get rid of the pirate problem that was uh, really causing them problems both in the courts and in the field. And this wasn't an uncontroversial move by the FCC either, as I recall, because on the one hand, there was a growing public sentiment in favor of it and, and a coalition of groups ranging pretty widely, you know, amongst folks who came to front to it from social justice, uh, as well as, um, for instance, the United Church of Christ. I, you also I had you also had like states rights militiamen, you know, people who don't really believe in federal authority at all and look for the devolution of law to exist pretty much at the local level, um, they were involved in this. They were involved in the micro-radio movement. Some of them actually got involved in, in low-power FM. I mean, it was a real left-right coalition. And yet, in Congress, there was opposition. There was also some opposition, I recall, from the commercial radio industry and, and even national public radio to the creation of the low-power uh, radio service. Yeah, um, that Federal Communications Commission and Congress pretty much made it impossible for them to to make the LPFM service accommodate the micro radio movement in two specific ways. The first one was Congress, through the passage of the 
you know, a crazily named Radio Broadcasting Preservation Act, essentially was convinced by the junk science lobbyists of the broadcast industry and national public radio to put horrible restrictions on the number of LPFM licenses that would actually be offered nationwide. So the FCC's initial plan for LPFM called for thousands of radio stations to be licensed in markets large and small. Uh, by the time Congress had gotten through with their legislation, that was reduced to hundreds of stations. And in the largest urban areas in the country, where it just so happens that there is a, a concentration of pirate activity, those markets were cut out completely. The second thing that happened was uh, the Federal Communications Commission in Congress rescinded a proposal in the initial LPFM plan which would have provided amnesty to pirate broadcasters. So in the FCC's initial LPFM plan, it basically said that if you're a pirate radio broadcaster and you read this order and you cease broadcasting, or if our FCC agents show up at your door and within like a month you cease broadcasting, you can still be eligible to get an FCC LPFM license. Well, the licensed broadcast industry and its lobbyists didn't like that. So as part of the Radio Broadcasting Preservation Act, that amnesty provision was removed. And a very uh, famous micro radio activist in the 90s uh, said about that at the time, it's kind of like passing civil rights legislation for everybody except Rosa Parks, who still has to sit at the back of the bus. And when the LPFM service was eviscerated by Congress, that actually inspired a third wave of unlicensed broadcasting in the United States, which continues to this day. So here we are 20 years later after the passing of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And a little of me is surprised that Radio Survivor is amongst one of the only outlets noting this occasion, uh, in part because at the turn of the century, as you noted, John, there was this sort of newly energized media reform movement that was in part energized because of this massive consolidation that happened in radio. But that same consolidation swept across the media industry and involved television and then also involved uh, new Internet industry, cable television, on and on and on into these new – Newspapers. Uh, yeah, newspapers, et cetera, into these newly kind of highly concentrated uh, media conglomerates that also people could see every day in everything they read or saw or watched, uh, the localism, the diversity of voices going away, being kind of filtered out. Um, and yet it seems like today in in – 2016, um, we don't have quite the same kind of uh, hyper-mobilized movement, and yet it doesn't seem like things have gotten better. <laughs> and I wonder if you have uh, – and I know it's an open-ended question, but if you have, have any thoughts on, on why we're sitting here uh, 20 years later and uh, one, not a lot has changed, but two, there seems – people seem to be a little less lit up about it. Well, uh, I don't know if I totally agree with that. I mean, I think that the media reform movement, which came out of 
the LPFM proceeding, which came out of unlicensed broadcasting and the micro radio movement, has now become somewhat institutionalized in and of itself. There are many organizations that are doing wonderful work in Washington, D.C. on the policy front um, who have constituencies and fiscal sustainability and all those types of things where they can actually help mobilize popular discontent around negative media policy issues. What, what are so, those organizations? Uh, that would be organizations like Free Press, the Prometheus Radio Project, the Future of Music Coalition, Public Knowledge. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of them out there. Thanks. Uh, and they're working on a lot of different issues that that go far beyond, you know, broadcast policy. Now we're talking about internet privacy, surveillance, uh, broad access to broadband, the digital divide. Uh, Center for Media Justice uh, has brought the actual notion of media diversity and media right. justice to the table. So some old um, First Amendment issues and some new First Amendment issues. A lot First Amendment issues. There's all kinds kinds of uh, legal challenges that could be made to things like this. But a lot of this is focused around uh, policymaking, not in the courts, legislatively and, and at regulatory bodies. So, so the public actually has, in some respects, a seat at the policymaking table now. It might not be very big and it might not be very uh, robust, but at least regulators and politicians and lawmakers have to acknowledge the public interest in some fashion when they move on most media policies. On the downside of that, we have not won a positive policy battle since the creation of Low Power FM. Everything that the media reform movement has been able to do in large part since then have been defensive victories. We've stopped the, the worst possible thing from happening. So when when the FCC in the George W. Bush era wanted to even go further with right. relaxing the radio ownership cap, That Michael Powell moment. Right. The Prometheus Radio Project intervened in court and successfully stymied that. Uh, remember the Stop Online Piracy Act? Um, that was a couple of years ago, which was going to potentially break the internet and cause a lot of uh, potential for surveillance by private telecommunications companies on your online behaviors. People mobilized against that. You know, Wiki, Wikipedia and Reddit and Craigslist all went dark for a day and directed everybody to basically melt the phones down on Capitol Hill. And those were big victories, but they were defensive victories in that they didn't necessarily make our media environment more democratic. They stopped it from becoming less democratic. So it's, it's a hard struggle to be a media reformer because you're always on the defense. And I don't know what it would take for us to move on to the offense, um, we've <laughs> a political seen, revolution. <laughs> you could be. I mean, and we've seen some. We've seen some areas, you know, that have gone in that direction. For example, um, the the reduction of prison phone rates, mm. which is something that the Center for Media Justice was was very big on on actually taking place. And they built a coalition uh, to to get the FCC to look at the issue and actually to start making it affordable for families to talk to their incarcerated loved ones behind bars. The, the imposition of uh, Title II uh, on broadband, the network neutrality um, proceeding of last year, that was, a, that was in many ways, a, you could call it a, a potential positive victory because the FCC was prepared to go in a completely different direction with network neutrality until these coalitions of media reformers mobilized millions of people and handfuls of actual citizens to go sit in Chairman Tom Wheeler's driveway and prevent him from going to work, you know, and, and he saw the light, 
You know, he had his come to Jesus moment and he was fired up when he felt the, the Holy Spirit of the public interest. Um, so there is moments in time when we can possibly have positive, progressive media policy victories. Hopefully they become less few and far between. Thank you, John, for uh, reminding me of the fact that that what happened is this sort of uh, popular movement was able to create and establish uh, something a bit more sustainable, as you put it. And I think that that's, uh, it's easy to mistake. And I, and I certainly, uh, understand. I do this myself. It's easy to mistake loudness for action Mm -hmm. and understand that in these realms, a lot of this action takes place, uh, one-to-one or it takes place in proceedings. It takes place in, 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 uh, congressional hearings. It takes place, uh, in conversations that are had at different events. And now the public, we have these groups that represent the public interest there, which is one of the things that people were fighting for is to have a seat at the table, to be able to get through on the phone to an FCC commissioner, to be able to, uh, talk with somebody on a high ranking committee. Um, and a little bit more of that exists. And as you point out, we, we could certainly have more of it and, and there could be uh, more, as you call it, sort of uh, um, we, we could have more uh, offensive victories rather than defensive victories. But, you know, this is the legacy that we now have. Uh, and it's all a bit defensive in that it it's came from this 20 year old piece of legislation that that wreaked devastation, really, on, on local communities, media not just on radio, but on television, in print, and otherwise. Right, because the jobs never came back. <laughs> the, the radio airwaves might have opened up again, but the, but the paid positions stayed gone yeah. after the Telecommunications Act allowed all that consolidation. And through all of this, the pirates are still there, aren't they, John? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, people that talk about radio dying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, really – need to look at what's happening, you know, underneath, uh, the radio dial to a certain respect. There are more pirate radio stations on the air right now than I think there might've been at the inception of the micro radio movement, maybe even close to the heyday of the micro radio movement. Back in the nineties, people were throwing around numbers like a thousand stations being, you know, unlicensed stations being on the air across the country. There's at least a hundred unlicensed radio stations in New York city today alone. And from my apartment here in Brooklyn on any given weekend, I can hear close to three dozen unlicensed radio stations. And these stations are serving specific communities, which because of the Telecommunications Act of 1996 and other developments in the media industries have effectively been cut out of communicating with their own communities. Uh, the area in which I live is, is very Afro-Caribbean. It's very Haitian. Uh, and there's probably, you know, six, eight Haitian pirate radio stations on the air playing music, talking politics, uh, doing phone shout outs and requests. Uh, these stations, some of them are commercial, where local uh, Caribbean businesses will advertise with them or a club will advertise with them. So they're actually serving um, both a communicative and an economic function in these communities, which simply have no reason to advertise or try to go to iHeartMedia and get some time on their airwaves. 
and in many respects, unlicensed broadcasting in that way has become less politicized. I mean, these people still know that they're breaking the law, but they're not doing it to get in the FCC's face. They're doing it because they see this as connective, communicative tissue within their communities that they're providing. That's a necessity for that community's cohesion. And, and those types of stations exist uh, significantly in the largest urban markets in the country. And then you also have people that still subscribe to the notion that there is a some sort of a lacking piece to their media environment and they will throw up a micro radio, pirate radio station uh, to serve that community. It's still a, a pretty diverse movement. It's not necessarily anywhere as organized as it, as it might have once been. It's certainly not as explicitly politicized as it might have once been, but it's still a constant uh, part of the radio broadcasting landscape pretty much nationwide. John, thank you so much for that reminder and for helping to tell the story of the last 20 years in radio. Always a pleasure. Up next, College Radio Watch. Eric's going to talk with Jennifer Waits about her upcoming talk at Haverford College which is about that school's storied radio station. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, so uh, today we are going to talk about something that you have extremely deep knowledge about. Is this, is this fair? <laughs> are you an expert? Are you the world's foremost expert in WABQ? <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. I have, I have some... Some colleagues who know a little bit as well. We're throwing but... down the gauntlet today on College Radio <laughs> Watch. If you know more about WABQ, then you're also uh, welcome to be a guest on the podcast. I know. Yeah, that would be fabulous. Uh, <laughs> so WABQ was the first college radio station at Haverford College. Um, it launched in 1923. And I went to Haverford College. So Where is Haverford? It's near Philadelphia. Okie doke. It's about 20 minutes from Philadelphia on the main line. Um, and I, I went to Haverford College, and that's where I got my start in college radio. Mm. But when I was there, I didn't really – I wasn't really aware of the history of radio on campus. Um, and at some point after I graduated, I became sort of fascinated by this early history of radio there that I didn't know much about. So I started digging into the archives at Haverford College and interviewing alums and found out about this amazing, rich, early history. And I'm actually going to be going to Haverford College and giving a presentation about this on February 23rd. So I thought it would be cool to do a preview of that for our Radio Survivor yeah. listeners. College Radio Watch fans agree. It will be cool to hear you preview. So uh, we're going back. It starts in the 1920s. Is that is that yeah. early for the history of college radio? Was Were there a lot of college radio stations in that decade? Yeah. I mean, see, this is something that a lot of people are not aware of. Um, so I try to talk about this. That So the first experimental radio license in the U.S., was issued to a college actually in 1912, um, St. Joseph's College in Philadelphia. Um, and then by the teens, like 1917, University of Wisconsin had a radio station that was broadcasting music over the airwaves, and Human Voice followed in 1919. And then the earliest college radio stations arrived on the scene by the 1920s. 
1925, there were 124 radio stations operated by colleges and universities, which is kind of <laughs> kind of shocking, actually, right. uh, because we just the the um, the stories of those 1920s stations are really lost in the ether. Yeah, and everybody the- everybody knows about the founders of Silicon Valley and the men who built the internet. Uh, it seems it seems like a very similar uh, moment in a very new technology, and it's all it's, it's a all lost, lost. History. And a lot of these stations were very short lived, so that's part of it. Some of those stations were only on the air for maybe a year, mm-hmm. and then by 1932, there were only there were less than 30 college radio stations in 1932. So a lot happened by the end of the 20s, but there was this amazing proliferation. You know, it was it was like the internet. It was this new technology. So a lot of people were really excited about radio and wanted wow. to get on the air. So tell us about WABQ at Haverford. How how was it founded? So they a radio club founded at Haverford around 1920. Um, and at the time, Haverford College was an all-male school. It's a Quaker college, a uh, pretty small school near Philadelphia. So people started a radio club around 1920. And then by 1923, they decided to build and launch a radio station called WABQ. And one of the masterminds of this station was actually a freshman, which is amazing to me, William S. Halstead from the class of 1927, he was one of the masterminds and he ended up becoming really prominent in telecommunications and helped to develop FM and stereophonic broadcasting, you know, after Haverford Hmm. during his career. So So he he was was a techie. He was, yeah, he was definitely a techie. Um, so yeah, in, 1923 is when they founded WABQ. And at the time, um, they were also doing amateur broadcasts or amateur radio. So there was a lot of communication with Morse code with other stations. So that was, that was going on in addition to their broadcast station. And they ended up attracting a lot of attention for some of those activities in addition to the act of uh, launching a broadcast station. Uh, They got written up in a lot of national press. They had stories in the New York Times. Um, There were stories before the station was built, uh, written up in a publication called The Wireless Age, where they talked about um, one of the most unusual forms of aerials ever used by a radio broadcasting station in this section of the country is under construction at Haverford College where a high-power transmitting set is being installed. So at the time, there was even excitement before something was was built. You yeah. know, there was all this energy. Um, and so at the beginning, they had around 15 members of their radio club um, who were built, working to build the station. And they installed a steel radio tower uh, atop a building on campus just before the beginning of the school year in fall 1923. And the founder, one of the founders, William Halstead, who I mentioned, he wrote, ba- he wrote about um, the founding of the station for a Haverford publication in 1960. And he said, when the station was established, broadcasting was in its infancy. There were no national networks and few recognized the enormous potential presented by the new communications medium. 
And, and at the time, they thought that was the first student-built and operated broadcast station, which I still, you know, it wasn't the first college radio station, but it's possible it could have been one of the first student-built college uh-huh. radio stations. And that's, that's amazing, because I was going to ask, and then I was afraid that if I asked, I'd be revealing too much of my radio history ignorance. Um, the other radio stations that you could have tuned in in the region, uh, what would they have sounded like, and how was... was what WABQ was doing on the air, uh, similar or different? Uh, well, that's harder for me to know, but, um, you know, at the, I can, I can talk a little bit about what they were broadcasting. Um, and this is another quote from Halstead. He said in the early period of WABQ's operation, there were no electrical phonographs and disc records left a great deal to be desired. Practically all broadcasts were live from the studio or other points on the campus, or the Ardmore Theater. The disc jockey was unknown. When RCA Victor introduced electrical recordings, Irving Smith, who was somebody at the station, rebuilt an electrical pickup unit from a Stromberg Carlson phonograph and connected it (laughs) through an amplifier to the studio line. With this, WABQ became one of the first stations to broadcast music from recordings in what was, at the time, we considered to be an approach to high fidelity. Wow, Napster. I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to keep I know. Uh, ridiculously comparing well, it to the dawn of the internet. It's no, it's, it's a fair comparison. Um, it's yeah, it's definitely a fair comparison. That's so exciting. They, so they were, and with the Morse code, um, amateur radio communications, they were talking to people in London, Montreal, Maine, Nova Scotia. Um, and they even did, chess matches using Morse code. <laughs> and now it is the internet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they, they communicate with all these people in Morse code all over the world. Um, they did an international, what was said to be the first international chess match uh-huh. by wireless <laughs> with Oxford university. Who won? Um, there was no winner, <laughs> which is so Haverford, you know, Quaker school, like something, something happened with the weather and so they had to pause the match. And so I think there was actually no winner. <laughs> but, you know, at Haverford, it's not really about um, competition or winning and losing. So it's great that a lot of the articles didn't even report who the winner was. Uh-huh. It didn't really matter. Wow. And um, does, does that, do you think that that has an impact on why, why this happened, when it happened, where it happened? Do you think the, the Quaker school was uh, was nurturing to this experiment in a certain way? Is there anything about that in the record? I don't know. I mean, I think there's, I think there's something special about Haverford and and the Quaker ideals uh, were still very strong, you know, when I was there in mm-hmm. the '80s. Um, but I don't know, uh, you know, it's right. it's hard to know what the student population was like in the '20s. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, and so more, you're asking about the what they broadcast. By yeah. spring 1925, it was one of the largest clubs on campus. And this is a really small school. Uh-huh. And it was airing lectures, speeches, and concerts by campus musical groups, which could be heard as far away as 1,500 miles from the college. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. And, and it, was, it talked about that. So I looked in, um, in yearbooks, in Haverford College yearbooks, and um, they talked about this idea that alumni could hear the station from, you know, 1,500 miles away. 
And one yearbook entry from 1925 said, WABQ forms an invisible link between hundreds of alumni scattered throughout the East, and it is the goal of the club to have within the near future a station powerful enough to reach a thousand miles in every direction, spreading Haverford thoughts and ideals into many homes within hearing of WABQ. And when I read that, of course, I thought, internet. You yeah, know, that's, of course. Um, that's amazing. And is there anything that you could find about how it was received um, far, far from campus? Did people appreciate what, you know, this, this unique uh, ear, ear window, this unique window into, into this college life? Oh, yeah. And, and they, um, you know, so at the time, uh, people would send in postcards, they would write in to, to say, like listening reports saying, you know, I heard the station in San Diego. Um, so I think, I think there was also some sort of, um, like that was, that was almost like a game for people, you know, Uh to keep track of what stations they could hear all over the country. So I know more about that than maybe the reception of the programs. Sure. Um, but, but yeah, um, you know, it was a very powerful college radio station, perhaps one of the most powerful at the time, and potentially the second most powerful station in Pennsylvania, um, is what some of these reports say. Um, and, you know, it was designed and constructed and operated entirely by students, yeah. by undergraduate students. You know, there are no, as far as I know, there were no graduate students. Um, there weren't when I was at Haverford. So it's it's pretty astonishing. You know, a lot of the early radio stations that I've run across at colleges were actually operated by maybe, you know, a physics department or a professor doing research. So the fact that this was masterminded by students Mm -hmm. is, is also pretty incredible. How exciting. And so it was founded in the Mm twenties. What do you know about, um, how station culture developed as, as the founders grew up and left, left campus and it was passed on well that will be part two Uh, (laughs) of our comfort (laughs) of our conversation things Um, things changed that quickly things changed i I mean i will say that there were reports that the radio station got more press than all of the athletic teams combined (laughs) Mm -hmm. so you know in the 1920s they were being written about in the new york times and you know various various popular publications um so there was a huge amount of um, of pride in the achievements of the radio station with with these amazing broadcasts. They they were really focused on the quality of the broadcast. Like you know, when they were broadcasting these music concerts, they wanted it to be very high quality, and mm-hmm. they saw themselves as competing with the other commercial stations of the time. So this was an AM station. Um, and so they were, you know, competing with other Philadelphia radio stations. It was not, they took it very seriously. And then as, as the founders were nearing graduation in 1927, things changed. Well, that's, that will be part two. Tune in next week to hear part two of Jennifer's College Radio Watch report on, on the history of WABQ in Haverford. At the you know, one of the earliest and uh, most interesting, I'm gonna I'll put a flag in it. Most interesting college radio stations uh, in history. <laughs> yes.
And of course, there's going to be links in the show notes to, to a number of your articles, Jennifer, that you've written about WABQ on, for Radio Survivor. But if people, uh, I- unless they're lucky enough to be at Haverford on, on February 23rd, they're just going to have to wait for you to, um, to write it up in another form that they can access. Are you going to put together a grand version, a written version? Oh, it's, it's, it's like a never-ending project. I, <laughs> a book. I have, I have a few articles published, and, um, and the research isn't done. So I'm hoping Hooray. to continue to, to dig into the archives at Haverford um, because they actually – somebody at Haverford had the foresight to start saving materials related to the stations. Mm. And I still haven't made it made my way through everything they've saved. Oh so let's, it's let's, kind of a dream. I, I wish more colleges would would set up archives of college radio materials. Right. Well, that's a great way that we'll begin part two of this conversation next week. Uh, thanks so much, Jennifer, for joining us on Radio Survivor today. Thanks. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you so much, Jennifer and Eric, for bringing us this great story about one of the earliest, earliest radio stations, never mind the fact that it's a college radio station, um, yeah. a story I would only know about, and I think most people would only know about because of Jennifer's great work here. And I just Survivor. can't get over that, um, thinking about it through the lens of, of the kind of people that founded, uh, you know, Silicon Valley internet businesses, um, that the, the same sorts of, of technical geeks and tinkerers were the, were the people who were making uh, who were who were at the very beginnings of radio in the 1920s. It was the high tech, yeah. of, of the 1920s. That's Fascinating fantastic. guys and and gals. Hopefully someday we'll talk more about the gals at another time. Yeah, if you have any comments or questions about the program, send them to us podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And also remember, we are trying to turn this into a radio show for non-commercial stations. Um, if you can help us do that please contribute to our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash radio survivor. We do really appreciate that you spend an hour or so of your week with us. Um, It's an absolute privilege to talk with you. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Thank you, Eric.